If you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes, what we call sermon notes, on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the upper right-hand side, you're going to get the verses we're going to cover. You get a place to write down some notes. You get four simple questions. During this series, we are just simply asking you those four questions every week. And on the back, you get a little wrap-up of kind of what we talk about during the message if you want to grab that. But if you don't want a paper copy, you can download an app called Version. Once you download it, it just says Bible. You click on More and then Events in Version. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Judges chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and it says this. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us again what we can learn from the lives of these people in the scriptures, that we would look for and see the things that you are leading us towards, and it would lead us to a better understanding of the gospel and what it means to be your people in this world. Amen. Have a seat. We are doing this series called Not So Little Women about different women in the Bible. And we're not going to hit every woman in the Bible, obviously, over the few weeks that we are going through this. I have a book in my office about this thick, and it says the women in the Bible. Each one gets about a paragraph, and it's that thick. So we're not going to hit every woman in the Bible. You're welcome, or maybe you're angry about that. I don't know. Uh, But today we're going to talk about this judge from the Old Testament named Deborah. If you have a Bible, you can open to Judges chapter 4. We're going to do chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you're going to use one of the Bibles at Element, that's on page 131. And I am going to be up front with you with this. There's a lot of people who hold different views around the roles of women in the church and things like that. And I am going to probably irritate all of you this morning. Because there are some of you who are going to think I didn't go too, I didn't go far enough, and some of you who think that I went way too far. And whatever side you are, just offer me some grace. We got to remember that you know we have open-handed issues and closed-handed issues, and I'm going to thread between that and make you all angry today. So yay, let's go. Uh, Deborah was the only female judge in the Old Testament, and her story is told in the book of Judges. And really what you see about her is the dream that we should have for all the kids and adults at Element, that we would grow to know God, that we would walk with Him, that we'd lead others to know Him, and that we would speak honestly and truthfully. The story of Deborah is bloody, it is brutal, A lot of violence involves a battle with an evil tyrant. And some people say these kinds of stories are what cause violence, but not if we understand them correctly. When we understand them correctly, it'll do the opposite of causing us wanting to go about violence because these stories show that we believe in a God who does restore justice, who is a God of justice. And if we believe that he will restore justice, we won't feel like we have to become those vigilantes to bring about justice. As cool as Batman is, and I like Batman, you don't have to become a Batman. 
See, if an atheist, then, you know, they don't believe in God. And so they don't believe in a God of justice. And so there's a place where they say, I've got to serve up this justice. And you will see the difference in something like the civil rights movement. You go back to Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. It was based around peace because it was centered in Christ. You look at their writings, it's like God will ultimately restore justice. That doesn't mean that they were idle. They stepped out and did lots of things, but they centered in peace because it was centered around the call of God in their life. Now, to Today, there's many people in that same type of movement who become very violent because they no longer believe in God. They no longer believe in Jesus, and they've pushed that out of the movement, and the movement now is becoming more and more violent. See, if you don't believe in a God of justice, it's going to eat you up inside until you must avenge yourself. And that creates a hateful, vengeful, fearful, cancel culture world. Ultimately, in Jesus, in the cross, we have a different type of world. We get to see everything differently because, number one, all wrongs against you and me and everybody will be righted. And the second thing we see is that all wrongs that I have done personally against someone else is also taken care of at the cross of Christ. And we can't walk around and say, I've never hurt anybody. We have to realize the places that we have wronged others. There's only two ways to live our lives, with ourselves as our own Savior or trusting Jesus to save us. Last week, we talked about King David. He says, I'm going to save myself, and it ruined a lot of his life. So we want to come to the place where we understand that Jesus is the one who saves us. Okay, so the other thing I want to tell you about Deborah is you will see that she gives us a beautiful glimpse into the role that God has, not just for women, but women and men together in the church, that God gives the same gifts to women that he gives to men. In Galatians chapter 5, fruit of the Spirit. Women and men. So Deborah's a prophet. She is wise. She's a respected leader. Some people have said that the only reason that Deborah was a prophet or a judge is because there is no men around to do the job. There is nothing in this passage that says that. Nothing whatsoever. You will even meet a man named Barak, but before you meet him, Deborah was already an established leader and judge in Israel. The story will say she was in the place that she was really because of God's leading and God's gifting in her life. And so we believe that women have access to every spiritual gift that men have access to. And there is this myth out there that has been purported for a really long time that men in the church should be taught deep theology, which I think they should. But they say women, we should teach them how to match their curtains and their drapes with their pillows. Not that any dude would ever know how to do that, right? But we ought to teach them that, how not to cry on rainy days. I even read of this women's conference where they were teaching the book of Ephesians. And the only thing they taught at this women's conference out of the book of Ephesians was Ephesians 5 and women in marriage. Like the rest of chapter 5 and the rest of the book of Ephesians wasn't for women. Guys, it's for women and for men. All of us, next year in January, we're going to do the book of Ephesians. Well, January to June, because... I'm long-winded, uh, but we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, and it's for all of us. So again, if you have a Bible, Judges chapter 4, page 131, if you're using one of the Bibles at Element. In the Old Testament, you will see women could be leaders, prophets, judges. The only thing they were not were priests. And some people say, well, that's because of menstruation cycles. I don't think that's the reason why, but that's a whole nother issue on the side. Women even advised the priests. And I think sometimes that's a very important thing. Uh, there is not this hierarchical view in the Bible of who is better. This whole idea of who, who is better that comes about because of sin and man's fall and running from God. We are equal in God's sight. We are meant to work together to move the kingdom of God forward as we 
we complement one another. And Deborah, in the book of Judges, will be identified with her husband. Judges 4.4 says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lippidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now the writer doesn't do this for the men. The writer doesn't say, oh, look, here's Joshua, the husband of so-and-so, or Barak. Uh, that's kind of funny. We had a president, right? So Barak, husband of Michelle. It, do it doesn't say that in the text. And really, this becomes a Hebrew way of indicating that she has an identity that is not solely wrapped up in her being a judge or a prophet. She is also a wife, and it's meant to make us see this is a really good thing because it shows you her and her husband are in the same team doing this. Barak, at one point, may even ask Deborah to to lead the army and she refuses. She says, I'm gonna advise, but I won't lead because that's not the role that God has laid out for me. And she's cool with that. There has been this false dichotomy put forward in the church that either you believe there is no distinctions in any roles between men and women whatsoever, or you believe that women can only serve in some diminutive role because they don't have the capacity to lead. And at Element, we reject that dichotomy. We wanna say, and I hope this is not confusing, that the Bible teaches an equality of position before God, an equality of gifting. But there are distinctive roles in family and church. I talk about this more in our weekender class. I'll talk about it more next year when we hit the book of 1 Timothy. But what I want you to know, if you're a woman, God has a calling on your life. He does. None of us are meant to sit on the sidelines. And so your job is to proclaim the good goodness of God in great and bold ways. And secondly, you need to also understand that you are a leader and you have spiritual authority, authority in your life. And if you are single, you don't have to wait to get married to be used by God. If you're a woman, you don't have to be overly dependent on anyone other than Jesus. We all have a spiritual responsibility. And so Deborah is a leader of the highest caliber. She's the wisest and most courageous person in all of Israel at this time. And I think the church needs more Deborahs who will lead in the places that God calls them to with wisdom and courage and faith. And if you are a man and you married a Deborah platformer, come alongside her, help her in the best ways that you can. I mean, this is Deborah's story, but I really love that it does mention Lipidoth because he's not angry that she's a prophet or a judge. It really, it looks like he's like, hey, let's do this. This is the gifts that God has given you. And so he platforms her so she can bless Israel as she did. And if you feel like one of those people that a woman never has anything to teach you, Judges chapter five is written by a woman. And we're gonna look at most of it today. Okay, so there we go. Again, I probably went too far for some, not enough for others, but there we are. So now let's talk about the story. Here we go. Uh, the story of Deborah involves four people, obviously Deborah, uh, then a guy named Barak, a guy named Sisera, and then a woman named Jael or Yael. We say our J's. They didn't say their J's like Jesus is Yeshua. And so it's Yael, but I'll probably say it both ways. Anyway, Israel has this cycle. They, they sin against God, and God allows foreigners to come in and discipline them, and this has happened again. Judges 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. That is the previous judge before Deborah. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, verse 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years 20 years so Israel is under the heel of Jabin 
king of Canaan. Uh, Jabin's main agent of oppression is a guy named Sisera, his commander. Sisera has 900 iron chariots. Iron is a very big deal in this time. Not a lot of people could get their hands on iron. So he has like an, all these ancient tanks at his disposal. And this is where Deborah shows up when the people cry out. So she is a prophetess. That means she's going to teach what God is saying to the people. You see her doing this. She is leading Israel. She is holding court. And that's not like a queen's court. This is more like an actual place where Israelites would come and they would have their disputes settled by Deborah. And Deborah is really different from all the other judges you will read about in the book of Judges because she will lead with wisdom and character rather than might. When you meet a lot of other judges, they're going to war, they're making plans for assassination, but Deborah counseled and guided the people. And she actually becomes the closest to a godly leader of the people instead of simply being a general. Like there's going to be a battle, but she is a judge who leads beyond that battlefield. And God is reminding us that a chosen leader of his does not simply rescue, but also rules. And this is what we ultimately see in Christ. It has been said by one commentator, Deborah was in this sense the greatest pointer to the monarchy and even to Christ. And so Deborah is alone among the judges, not a warrior. She's not a warrior, but she will call up Barak to free God's people. She will send for this guy to bring 10,000 men to Mount Tabor. Now, God's going to give the victory over Sisera and these 900 iron chariots to Barak, but what you'll see is the ruler, the, uh, Deborah, is not going to be the rescuer. That's Barak. And Barak, the rescuer, is not going to be the ruler. That's Deborah. And in the end, neither Deborah nor Barak is the one who's going to eventually takes Sisera out. That's going to be this woman named Jael. So there's kind of three heroes working together in this story, kind of like the triuneness to bring about the story of what's taking place here. So Deborah com commissions Barak, and he kind of boxed at the commission. Uh, Judges 4, verses 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you, meaning to fight Sisera. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, again, she's not talking about herself. She's talking about Jael, who Sisera is going to be sold into. And this, a lot of people say, well, here's Barak. He's afraid. He's a coward. He doesn't want to go. Actually, the Hebrew rendering of this may not be like that at all. It could be he has a desire for Deborah to go with him, and it's not disobedience. It's, I want to know God's plan for me every step of the way. It's not like, what are my marching orders? Got it. Okay, now what? It's, it's like, I want you to go with me, so each step of the way, God is there and saying, now let's do this, let's do that. So it could actually mean that in, that, in the Hebrew manuscript. It's a recognition of Deborah as a godly woman speaking God's words to him. And why wouldn't he want her with him? Barak could be showing us that faith is actually listening to God every single step of our life in every circumstance. And Barak has a lot of trust in God because there is no way 10,000 men would ever stand up to 900 iron chariots. You just get mowed over every single time. But he goes and he stands up. Judges 4 verses 14. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So Sisera is probably like, oh my goodness, how do my iron chariots lose? And he starts running away on foot. He ends up at the person of a tent named, a person named Jael at their tent. He thought that meant safety because Jabin, who is, you know, his 
leader and Hebrew, Heber, which is Jael's husband, are actually allies together. So Jael sees Sisera, says, oh man, you had a tough day. You just lost your 900 iron chariots. Anytime you lose 900 iron chariots in a day, man. So how about here's some milk and cookies? And why don't you come into the tent and hang out? So as his adrenaline starts to go away, sounds really nice, he falls asleep. Judges 4.21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly, oh, you see what's coming. And then went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. I love this next line, so he died. It's like total understatement. It's like, I don't know if they're afraid of zombies. Like, get them in the head. That's what you got to do here. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Nice. It's like, we're far enough. You're a few thousand years removed. It's okay to let. So cultural understanding doesn't make that less gruesome, but it does make it a little more comical. Now, setting up and taking down tents in this day was considered women's work. Now, I know in today, it's like dudes, right? I put up the tent. Well, you watch me, woman. I put the things on the ground. I put the... But no, this day, it was women's work. And so a tent peg and a hammer were essentially a woman's household appliances. You go back, you know, 50 years, it's like death by blender or death by frying pan. That's, that's what it is. And it's probably designed by JL to make Sisera's death the most devastating defeat possible but it actually brings about Deborah's prophecy from verse 9. Now, humanly speaking, you know, the honor of this victory has been shared, but the honor goes to no human at all because only something as bizarre as a person with 900 iron chariots getting stuck in the mud during dry season and losing and then the fearsome warrior being killed by a blender shows that God is at work. That God is the rescuer. He is acting according to his will. He is bringing about what he wants. And it's not by people's merits. So he deserves the glory. God working through people is always a privilege for us. It's not meant to be a praise earner for us. Salvation is all God's doing. And Jael's method, what you have to understand here, she breaks very strong rules of Middle Eastern hospitality. You do not harm those who are under your roof, especially those you invite in. And it's treachery by standards of any culture. And so God doesn't condone her methods, but it's just like all throughout the scriptures. God will still use everything we do to bring about his glory and our good, ultimately, even if the methods we use aren't always the best. Now, I want you to go to chapter 5, because in chapter 5, this all starts to come together. Deborah is going to sing a song about this victory. And this victory looks beyond the history to the, uh, and beyond the surface and reveals God's hand behind everything. So in chapter 4, you will see the Lord is named only a couple times. In chapter 5, God's name is all over the chapter. So what do we learn from this crazy story? <laughs> Great stories in the Bible, I just swear. Okay, so the first one is this. I think it was J.D. Greer who said this. When leaders lead, people praise the Lord. And I think he got it from these verses. So Judges 5 verse 2 says that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. And so Deborah in her song, she's going to start naming these tribes who stepped up to fight and those who didn't. Verse 14, from Ephraim they came. Verse 15, the Issachar faithful followed. Verse 18, the people from Zebulun risked their lives. However, verse 17, Gilead remained in Jordan and Dan lingered with the ships. Uh, you guys ever hear the story of Cortez? Not how you feel about him and what he did, but the story of Cortez. He lands in Mexico in 1519 with 11 ships, 
500 sailors, uh, 500 soldiers. And so when they get to that shore, a lot of them are like, I don't like this. I want to go back to Cuba, the last port that we were at. Let's go there. And so Cortez orders his men to burn the ships in the harbor. He says, going back is not an option. He says, we will flourish or we will perish, but we will not run away. We're committed. And so G.K. Chesterton talks about this in reference to our commitments to following Jesus. And he writes one of the best sentences I think I've ever read. And he says this, All around us is the city of small sins, abounding in backward ways and retreats. But surely, sooner or later, the towering flame will rise from the harbor, announcing that the reign of cowards is over and man is burning the ships. Ooh, such a good line. I think the world is waiting for God's people to lead for God's people to stand up in a way that holds to the truth, even in the face of overwhelming odds like 900 iron chariots or 900 negative Twitter comments or whatever it is. One writer says, the great temptation to men, and men means mankind, the great temptation to men is not to do evil, but to do nothing. Now today, the International Missions Board says female applicants outnumber male applicants Four to one. And I think that's amazing that there's that many women who want to do this, but the men need to learn how to step up as well. Deborah says that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. That means praise the Lord. When the leaders lead, the role God has for every single one of us is to begin to lead in our lives wherever we are. And if we want our family and our church to grow, to praise the Lord, we must start to lead. Men, women, and children, all of us. There are all these studies that get thrown out there today. Like there's studies that say that when a child is a first to become a believer in someone's house, that's a 3.5% chance the rest of the family will follow. And then if the mother converts first, that rises to 17%. But if the father converts first, that percentage raises to 93%. And this has been a touted thing that people have said for a really long time. But We don't know where the study actually came from, so it's disputed now. It could be the Baptist Press or Promise Keepers out of Switzerland, but no matter what, it's still 30 years old. At the exact same time, 1990, the Christian Education Journal had a different study, and it said that 82% of all adolescents identified their mother as the most positive factor in spiritual development. In 2016, the Pew Research had a study where half of adolescents identified their mom as the most important factor in their faith journey, and 28% identified their dads. In 2019, Barna had a study. 68% identified their mother's faith as most influential. 46% identified their father's faith. And if you add that, it's more than 100%. If you do the math, that means where they said it's both of them coming together. George Barna then says this. Every year, tens of thousands of parents are brought to faith in Christ because one of their children was so changed by his or her own relationship with the Lord that the parent could not ignore the power of Christ any longer. So we take these studies and we start to argue, is it moms? Is it dads? Is it kids? Who's the best? Ooh, uh, and we start having these wars again against one another rather than realizing that it's every single one of us coming together to lead people to praise the Lord. That's what we should see. And instead we keep taking studies to say this person's more important. That person's more important. Nobody's more, Jesus is the most important. And so we wanna be a people who lead to Jesus, that's when people lift up and praise the Lord. That's when it happens. So let's stop trying to divide over all these things and simply begin to lift up Jesus. Here's my soapbox. Number two, it's a great story. Number two, God is not a fan of spectators. I didn't say God doesn't love spectators. 
but he's not a fan. Judges 5.23, curse morose, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. It does not say they did anything bad. It does not say, oh, the people in morose, they're too busy getting high to show up. No, it doesn't say that at all. They're just sitting on the sidelines. They aren't doing what they were created for. God has given every single one of us time and treasure and certain things we are good at in order to grow up to build the family of God and take his message into the world. So don't fool yourself by thinking, oh, I'm not robbing grannies on the weekends and I go to church every once in a while, therefore I'm okay. Guys, do you understand that there is this uh, study that was done that says that the divorce rate within the church is the same as the divorce rate outside the church? Guess what? That is a skewed study because if you look at people who are committed who actually show up every week, who are involved in the life of their church, those people in the world have the lowest divorce rate in the world. You know who has the highest divorce rate in the world? People who are nominally committed to their churches. Higher divorce rate than people who do not go to church at all. People who show up every once in a while, when I feel like it or whatever, nominally committed, have a higher divorce rate than anybody in the entire world. You were made for more than a casual commitment to God. You were made for more. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is not how we're saved. That is how we live after we understand what Christ did in our lives. That's not idle. It is following Jesus. We all lead. We're not meant to be spectators. And third, God wants from us just this simple obedience, that trust that he is who he says he is. There is this recurring theme in Judges where God brings down most tyrants with the weakest instruments, a housewife with a frying pan, right? Again, a tent peg is not a, is not a weapon of war. It is a household item. Judges teaches us that God does his work in the world through our availability, not our ability. You may think you're so great at these things, but God just wants us available. God, what do you want me to go? I, I'll go where you call me to go. Judges 5, 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. That's the way of saying it was so bad out there, no one could even travel. Chapter 5, verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. There's this contrast here that when the Lord goes out, he makes it tremble. He makes it rain. There's so much pressure, the earth starts to quake. God's power is so overwhelming. The earth can't stand up to that pressure. Many of you have overwhelming problems in your life right now, just like the Israelites. Some of those are from your own choices. Some of those are things that have been done to you. But God has never asked you to crack the ground. God says, I will crack the ground. What do we do? We trust him enough to follow him where he leads us. A simple obedience. Obedience is a beautiful word. And in America, we hate it. We hate this word. It's a beautiful word because only God and all of the universe is worthy of our unequivocal obedience. Judges 5.24, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. Why? Because she says, okay, God, send me and my frying pan. (laughs) Where, where do you want me to go? That, that's where I'll, where I'll go. We see this same language spoken by Mary since it's Christmas at the conception of Jesus. It's like the angel comes and talks to her and she in the end says, you know, be it unto me according to your word. I'll trust. I'll go. I mean, your first thing is, is why me? I'm nobody, but hey, I'll be available. I'll go where you call me to go. That's the prayer of surrender and faith. God, I will do what you say. 
I will trust you with the results. And the fourth thing is this. The hope of Israel and every single follower of Jesus is that God is going to one day right every wrong. At the end of Deborah's song, she begins to mock Sisera. You might say, eh, that's kind of mean. You know, he's got a tent peg in his skull. Now she's mocking him. Well, there's this line in, at the end of her song that speaks about the cruelty of Sisera and his men. That he essentially said, after this battle, he will give two women to every man so that they could rape them. That's what it says. It's sick and disgusting. And then Sisera is in a tent being killed by a woman. See, that's like that perfect justice of God being served. Sisera spent his entire life, it looks like, abusing women. And in the end, he is brought down by a woman. In Judges 5, 26 and 27, Deborah sings these words. And it's almost, most commentators say, supposed to represent the sound of a hammer striking. Not this one, because this is a composite hammer, but... Uh, but the blows as they hit on Sisera. So it's supposed to go like, I'm going to lose all my papers when I do this. But it's supposed to go like this, okay? She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple between her feet. He sank. He fell. He lay still between her feet. He sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Kind of dramatic, right? Like, that's louder than that drummer today. <laughs> You'll live. You're going to be fine. Now, Israel loved these stories, not because they were gruesome, but because it showed that God is faithful even when they were not. Deborah ends this, uh, Judges 5.31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. See, they love these songs as a reminder of God's faithfulness. Even in the hardships that they themselves had caused, God was still faithful. And it should remind us that God is always faithful. Not every story in the Bible has a happy ending. Not every story in our lives have a happy ending. As a matter of fact, after this, the Israelites will sin again. And they'll get another judge. And they'll sin again. And foreigners will come in. And God will send another judge. And it happens again and again and again. But God is faithful. Sometimes he allows years to pass before he brings about his rescue. And even at this point, Jesus is more than a millennia away. And you might think that you don't always see the justice of God serve like Deborah's story. Like some criminals get off, they get early release, they plead out to something else, and then they go into politics and they get elected to government office. That's how it happens. <laughs> but you have to understand, that does not mean the story is over. It does not mean the story is over. Stories like Deborah show a glimpse of how it ultimately is going to end. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy because we need both. In Christ, God pays for our sins as well as others. And when Jesus came, for many people in his day, he's an unexpected savior because he was crucified. And yet he slew the enemy by surprise, kind of like Jael. And in Jesus, oppression will be ended. And justice will be restored. But the problem for us is we assume that it's justice for everyone else. Everyone else is the evildoer. It's not me. Everyone else is the problem. And one of the other things that G.K. Chesterton said when they asked him, what's the problem in the world? He said, the problem's me. And it's true. It's every single one of us. We are the ones who forsake God. And the Israelites kept forgetting that, that they were the ones who were forsaking God. And so we must come to understand that we are the problem as well. And yet for us in Christ, God's love ultimately rests upon us in strength because of what he has done. 
Eternity is coming where God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. No more mourning or crying or pain. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so what do we want to do? We want to begin to lead, to tell people of this glorious grace that we have known, this God who has rescued us. We don't want to spectate anymore. We want to get off the sidelines. And then we want to live in that simple obedience where God calls us to. Why? Because God is faithful. And he has always been faithful. And that's what we really learn in the book of Deborah. We don't learn how many whacks it takes to get to the center of Sisera's head. What we learn is God's goodness and grace. We learn God's mercy. Even in the midst of his people who kept running away from him, God kept bringing rescuers. But all those rescuers were human, and every single one of those rescuers died. And then Jesus comes for us. And what does Jesus do? He also dies for our sins, but then he resurrects as the first fruits of what God is promising to do for every one of us, that there is ultimate justice and mercy in the person of Christ. Every single week at Element, we come to the place of communion. Why? Because it's a reminder of what Jesus did to save us. And so we come and you break that cracker like his body was broken. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed because God has always been faithful to his promises. And so we trust in this. And that then leads us into places where we can trust God to bring about ultimate justice while not being fatalistic, while not just saying, okay, God, I guess I'll do nothing. No, God calls us to stop spectating, get in, simple obedience, love, trust, follow him. I will lead where you call me and show the world the goodness of our great God who has saved us. Why? Because the gospel brings that result in our hearts when we truly understand it. We begin to change. We begin to see what God has done. And I think at communion every week, it's a great way to step back and get that reminder of what God has done. Because God has called us again, as I said, to lead, to stop spectating, to live in that simple obedience, but ultimately trust that he will bring everything about according to his will. This morning, if you need prayer, right across the way in the lounge, you can go during music, you can go after service, but right across the way in the lounge, if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. Maybe you are in your life right now going through something pretty difficult and you don't know what to do or how to walk through that. And it's like, I, I don't see the ultimate you know, reality and justice of God right now. I'm having a really hard time. Well, they would love to pray with you and talk with you and maybe sit down with you for a bit and walk through some of that. So maybe that you could see, you know, not just the light at the end of the tunnel, but that Jesus came to rescue. And he is not just at the end of the tunnel. He is right here with you today. So we'd love to be able to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's meant to be a response to what God has done in us because our God has been generous. And you can take those four questions on those sermon notes, talk to your friends, your family, maybe about some of those things, about what it really means in the midst of this kind of a gruesome story when you think about it, that God is still faithful. And that even an oppressed people who were under the heel of Sisera and Jabin, came to the place where it's like they still praised God and they turned and looked towards him in the middle of it rather than shaking their hand and blaming him. They said, God, please rescue us. And God rescues. And this has been the cry of humanity since we first ran from God. God rescues us and God says, I'm going to. And he sends Christ to rescue us, to bring us to himself. And we should be those who trust in what God has done and that he is the one who is faithful. Let's be those who trust because he is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would move us to a place of understanding of our own great salvation, that you have 
given to us. And maybe we haven't literally cried out with words, but our hearts continually cry out, looking for who you are and what you are doing, not just in the world, but ultimately in us. And so I ask that today we would recognize that, that we would see the goodness of who you are, your moving, your grace. And that as our lives begin to change, we would be those who would lead. We would move people to the place to see the grace that we have first received. We would lead to you. That we would stop spectating. And sometimes as hard as it is, we would, we would get involved. And we would begin to live out this simple obedience. But all of those things are a result only of what you have first done. And so that we would ultimately see the goodness of the gospel and the results of what it brings into our lives. Teach us to be a people who praise and worship and honor you for your goodness and your majesty, to look beyond ourselves and see all the grace that we have received. And teach us to go and live that out. And instead of fighting one another, come alongside one another so that we would lift up the gospel and all that we do. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. And drop these curtains. And maybe this might be hard for you. Maybe it might be easy. But what I'd like you to do, just in the next couple moments, close your eyes, ask God, God, where are you calling me to lead? Where are you calling me to stop spectating, stop sitting on the sidelines and say, I'll live in a simple obedience. I'll follow you. And if that's scary to you, because you're like, God might actually tell me to do something. <laughs> okay. The reason we do it is because it's that thing that God is the one who is faithful. Our focus is upon who he is and what he has done. Because when our identity is found in him, all those other things naturally begin to come into line. So God, you know, teach me to see the reality of the gospel. And then as I understand that, then teach me to lead people to that same place to stop spectating and to live in a simple obedience that recognizes him as God and us as his dearly loved people that he has brought back to himself. And hopefully he lays something in front of you. You got a, you got a Christmas season. People tend to be happier during Christmas. And maybe it's a good time to like lead people to know, hey, Christmas isn't about Santa. It's about Jesus we can kind of begin to point to the places of the gospel. So think about that. Now come and take communion, sing some songs with us, then we'll step out into this season, hopefully being those men, women, children, all together leading to Jesus.